everyone. Good afternoon. Hope you're doing well. Welcome back. Brett Henderson again, founder of Strategic Wealth Endeavor with another amazing episode of the Veteran Entrepreneur Masterclass. We have lovely Giselle. How are you this morning? Or this afternoon, Good whatever. Afternoon. Good afternoon. Good, Good afternoon. to be here. <laughs> Appreciate having you here. And then Chris Taylor, our guest today. How are you, Chris? I'm doing really well, Brett, and uh, excited to be here, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, I think this is good. So did you – so number one, I ask everyone before, when they come on, number one, are you a client of mine? Or I'm not I'm not a client of yours, but uh, I'm always intrigued to learn more, and you seem to have a lot of knowledge. <laughs> I, I don't know what I call – I have a lot of – I have a lot of something. I don't know if I'll call it knowledge, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> I digress. And then I think you actually – I can't remember if I connected with you first. You can, I actually think you connected with me, but once I actually read your profile on LinkedIn and your background, what you're doing, I actually wanted to connect with you too. So it's one of those mutual, I guess, stars aligning when two professionals seek each other and actually find each other. And again, it's just a test to the power of LinkedIn. Absolutely. It is, uh, it is great. And I just wish that all the people trying to sell me booked meetings would go somewhere else. But other than that one minor annoyance, it is amazing to meet people like you. With that, we'll do a slight digression. It is amazing because my first conversation, my connection, and I do use LinkedIn. I do use it for business. I use it for this group. I don't ever connect. Well, anyone who connects and pitches is failing. Never, ever, ever connect and pitch unless you're selling a toaster if that's all you're selling it's a quick transaction and it's a buck and you want it or not bought sure fine however if you have clients and not customers clients a client you must take the time to build a genuine relationship if you want that to be a successful relationship with the client and so what i have learned and i'll share and all our listeners that are have come through LinkedIn that I've met, my first question is not, hey, what can I sell you or a product? It's are you involved in the veteran community or is it in your past? That's my first question. We just start talking about being veterans. And for myself in business and using LinkedIn, so kind of a segue, but we'll definitely come to you because you use it as well. It's is this someone I genuinely would mind sitting across from having lunch or dinner with? What I have into my home. I normally say it's it's a gut check. So is this someone I would – you kind of get a sense just from the messaging back and forth. And I will say it's such a unique approach. No one else is doing it that people can't believe that I'm not trying to sell or pitch them something. So wait, this one gentleman, we still haven't connected. He's like, what do you want? Why do you keep messaging? Why are you trying? And And I'm like, I'm trying to get to know you. And well, what, what are you really trying to get at? I'm genuinely trying to get to the guard is up. It's high because they're so used and I'm used to it too. People connecting and pitching. So I would share, you know, a little bit of advice in this section because this is an educational series meeting. If you're on LinkedIn and you're trying to connect and you have one of these coaching gurus that sells you just pitch, 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 pitch. I actually even have a book. One of the gurus told me to get this book pitch. Oh, you can't. Can you see with the camera? I can put for uh, pitch anything. <laughs> and so his whole thing, connect to pitch, connect to pitch. And I, I paid them money. And then I said, if it doesn't work, I want a refund. And long story short, doesn't work. And they were flabbergasted when I asked for a refund. And said, You're the first person to ever do that. And I, I think we chatted with another podcast. And when I said, look, it's not working. And they actually fired me because I wouldn't play by their game because their, their game is disingenuous. Dis- disingenuous. 
And when I said, hey, this is actually when it, they told me it wasn't working for them because I wouldn't play their game and they're firing me. I said, OK, well, just it didn't work. So I want my refund as we agreed to. Well, well didn't we try? Didn't we try? <laughs> like, is this a world of participation medals? Like this is did we have revenue come the door? Did we not? Did we land a new relationship? Did we not using your methods, your techniques? The answer was no. So I got a full refund and they couldn't believe they actually refund me because they tried. But they uh, I think they're OK and they're over now. So that being said, I think where am I going here? All these things are relationships and corporate culture, which is what you do. And we're going to have you jump in and take over the, the podcast here momentarily. But before we do, why don't you provide a little perspective, Chris, on your time in the military, what you did, and just kind of give us a little background there on the military time, and then I'll ask you another question. Sure. Well, thank you. And my my military time is actually something that's always top of my mind because, uh, as I think we talked about when we met earlier, I was headed in the wrong direction as a kid. And every once in a while, a break happens and things break your way. And for me, what happened is a, a recruiter kind of took my interest in becoming a warrant officer helicopter pilot and said, hey, why don't you uh, become a mechanic? And that'll show that you're really committed to the military. And then it'll really help make your warrant officer packet a lot more attractive to the to the military. And of course, what happened is he processed me in as a mechanic and then he never returned my phone calls. I think I was going to say that he had a need and he just led you down that path. He didn't care. Wow. And unfortunately for him, I uh, was able to get the attention of a full bird colonel in the recruiting command. Um, I was a kind of a persistent little pain in the ass. And they kind of did a quick investigation and figured out that I had been kind of brought into the army under kind of the wrong circumstances. And they actually gave me to a different recruiter who actually had to take me as a drop and process my warrant officer packet. And I don't know if it was because of all of that hoop to do in my attention being given to me by that full bird who took a little bit of interest in what was going on in his command, or if I just got lucky or if I truly deserved it. But for whatever reason, I ended up at 18 years old in a high school to flight school program. And I went into Fort Jackson, South Carolina as an E1, uh, nothing on any sleeve. And of course, every night uh, when basic training was going on, I was being trained by two E5 drill sergeants who were very upset that the day after basic training, I was going to get E5 stripes slapped on me. And so every night was downstairs. Everybody else go to bed. Taylor, get downstairs, get in the front lean and rest, and we're going to tell you why you're going to fail. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love that. it was uh, quite the time. Ended up being for the best. I was a stubborn person, so it worked out for me. I ended up uh, going through the uh, the flight program at Fort Rucker and coming out a, a 19-year-old warrant officer flying Cobras. So that was uh, an interesting time. I ended up, I went in as an Apache pilot, but of course, in the late 80s, there was a budget crisis. And so there were some force reductions. And so I was basically force reduced into a reserve unit flying an old airframe, which turned out to be, of course, a blessing and a curse. The the curse was that the unit I was attached to wasn't long for the world because they wanted those airframes out of even the reserve inventory. The blessing was that in the first Gulf, we were on a 24-hour callback. All of our stuff was palletized and ready to go, but because the they never essentially needed the or wanted the Cobras in country to be able to have to deal with the logistics. And so I never was deployed, although I was, you know, almost deployed. It was quite a time. 
during that time, since I was in a reserve unit, I went to college. And so I said, yeah, nothing better to do. Let's go to college. Went to college, went in a business major, came out a chemist. And uh, at the end of my time, I ended up going and getting a PhD in chemistry. So all of that came from a kid who really was on the wrong track and wouldn't have probably would have just graduated high school and never gone to college. A lot of the people I went to high school with laid drywall, in fact, called me for years after saying, come on, Chris, you can make a lot of money laying drywall. And they were right. I could have made a lot of money, but uh, I'm far more excited about the path my life has taken because of the military. So that's that, that's good. I appreciate you sharing that. I think you know, me being a Marine, it's like, ah, Army don't want that airframe. Marine Corps is like, we'll take it. Like we were, Marine Corps loves Cobras. <laughs> and I think one of my fellow midshipmen, I think Colonel Brunk, he's still in, he's a Cobra guy. And actually, Patty Goff, he, he, another Marine Fullbird colonel that was on the podcast, he was a Cobra guy. I think Brunk has over a hundred confirmed kills from his time in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's a very lethal machine. And I still remember asking him one time, like, how do you know, like, you know, when you're around, if you're doing something and if you, you're gauging infantry, like, how can you actually tell you have a kill? Especially, it's like, well, with rockets, someone's standing there and then you see a, a pink mist. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, that, that's okay. That that makes sense. So it's a very, very lethal piece of equipment out there. So my hat's off to you. And I never had the eyes for, for being a pilot. I had to have uh, LASIK and I just had bad eyes. So I never even thought about it. Plus, I, I like blowing stuff up, too. So I like my MOS as a tanker was fun. So appreciate that. But combat arms, Army, Marine Corps, I think combat arms is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, and, of course, the uh, the Marine Corps Cobra has a little bit of an advantage in that you have an extra engine, which is required when you operate over the water. And so that's a that's a pretty nice machine, which they've upgraded over the years. But it is uh, it is fascinating. And I always thought, you know, I was young and I was very well, I'll just say it. I was an arrogant young man who was totally excited to be a warrant officer. And I was the time of my life flying helicopters and getting paid to do it. And uh, and I thought we were, you know, really badass. And then one day we got to do a joint air attack with A-10s. And, oh, yeah. Uh, then you're like, <laughs> oh, I was literally in a helicopter hovering shooting a 20 millimeter cannon, earplugs, helmet on, all of that going on. And clear as day through all that noise, we heard this look up, go, whoa, look down. <laughs> and they'd actually obliterated all of the targets in one pass. So there was now nothing to shoot at. And I had a whole bunch of ammo left and I had to actually just shoot it in the general direction. <laughs> now, the, the A-10, I think is amazing aircraft. And what I, I don't understand, well, probably because the carrier, because it's not, it's not able to go to Amphib. That's probably the only reason the Marine Corps never picked up for close air support. I mean, we've got, we had the Harriers, Lawn darts and, and F-18s, but I think the A-10 as a airframe was phenomenal for close air support. Yeah, I don't, I don't honestly think they've made anything even close to that. You know, it's a, it's almost like a helicopter that moves fast, carries more and has a better gun. More armor too. It's like a flying tank. Flying yeah. tank. Well, we could talk about that all, all day, but then our episode, our, our listeners are like, so why are we on this podcast again? So what does that do with entrepreneurship <laughs> and leadership? So Giselle yelled at me when I start rambling. Giselle's like, you're rambling again. You're rambling again. So Very to good. that, yeah, thank you. And so it's actually, we talked about, never, I'll just keep going. So I, a comment for Giselle, but well, not a comment for, but we we're talking about having something better. It's like, 
and stronger. So you talk about the Marine Corps Cobra, but like Giselle with her workout. So like she's strong. She's the one who goes to the gym now and she yells at people and gets, she's trains. She's a not, not quite a personal trainer, but she's a coach. So she goes to the gym and motivates people and yells at people. So I just try and keep her happy so she doesn't yell at me and, and I'm going to keep her on the good side. So Giselle keeps everybody in, in check here. So it's good. Um, so let's, let's change over to what or why we connected. And what I saw on your profile, why don't you chat a little bit more about what you do professionally today and how it really impacts corporate culture and the impact of your services and what you're seeing for a business owner. So if there's a business owner, they have a their business, they have employees, they have a staff, they have their culture, whatever it is, good, bad, or ugly, every business has a culture. And how does your business fit in? So why don't we take a step back, kind of share what you do now, and then we'll go and how your business impacts other business owners. Perfect. So so what do I do now? Well, I actually interview with all of my clients to become their third trusted advisor. And so every one of my clients has two trusted advisors that everybody knows. They have a financial advisor and they have a legal advisor. I paid you to say that. What about <laughs> CPA? Tax advisor. Tax advisor's first. Every CPA is first. We know that. And, and, and financial advisors way down the list. I know that too, but I appreciate your candor. And I interview for the people advisor, in other words, the chief people officer. And so what I do is help surround my clients with a a series of tools and a technology solution, and most importantly, consulting that allows them to make more and better informed people decisions as they look into their business. And one facet of that is culture, as you brought up. And for most companies, culture is one of those things that kind of evolves uh, laissez-faire or naturally. It's not something that people are taking on head on. And, and there's a challenge with that. The problem is a lot of corporate cultures suck. And I don't mean to be like super direct, but they do no, be direct and they, they don't sure. they don't honor the people that are working for them. They're often meant to potentially serve the uh, the manager, the leader they're working for. And they're not being done in a way. And one of the reasons I love working with veterans is because they've been in a system where they're a cog. And it doesn't feel really good. And if you run your business with people as cogs, you are going to have trouble attracting talent. And I don't know if people know the numbers, but this year, Gallup, who's a pretty reputable organization, says that 55 percent of workers are going to change jobs. And those people are going to leave managers and organizations and they're going to go some other place. And if you don't have or are not working towards a culture that attracts the best talent you can possibly afford, you're putting yourself at a really big competitive disadvantage. And so what I do is work with people to close those gaps, to begin taking control of their culture. You know, and there's different types of culture and there's different approaches and everybody's business has to fit themselves and what their goals are. But it shouldn't be just because. I think you brought up several good points there. And let's talk it. Let's talk about the cost if you don't have good culture. Let's talk about the cost of turnover, because if you have you don't have a good, strong corporate culture and or compensation and or benefits package or all three, your employees could be potentially part of that 55%. So let's say I'm an uninformed business owner and I say, so what? What's the cost? And you probably know more than me. I'm seeking back what the stats were a couple of years ago. It used to be for a blue collar 
cost of turnover was between five and fifteen thousand, maybe up to twenty five, depending on on the labor and skill set. So five grand to twenty five grand, medium about fifteen grand if you lose one one blue collar employee, and white collar, depending on the skill set, professional and tenure, could be between twenty five grand and and one hundred fifty grand. So rather, if you spend a little bit of time. And please correct me on, on the stats and, and numbers. If you spend a little bit of time adjusting your culture where you make it a place where employees and staff want to be with you long term and you don't have to find a replacement for that person, that could save you four blue collar employees, potentially, you know, 20 to, to say 50, 60,000 and white collar four white collar employees could be anywhere from a hundred to 400,000. Absolutely. And your numbers are a little low. I've actually done the analysis with a couple of my clients. I have a plumbing HVAC company who uh, brings people in right out of high school and gives them an apprenticeship for four years. And they lose, on average, before they met me, 16 of those young men and women in the first 120 days. And 16 out of how many? I'm sorry. They they hire 82 a year. 82? Okay. And they lose 16 of them. They lose more than that over a year, but they lose 16 of them every year in the first 120 days. And we actually did a deep analysis because, of course, turnover doesn't show up in one line on your P&L. It's buried all over on five or six different lines. But the real issue is when you brought somebody in, the, the big dollars were in slowing down a journeyman so that he couldn't do his job because he had to train somebody new how to do it. And each of those 16 turnovers cost them $38,000. Now, I don't know very many business owners that want to drop $400,000 into an expense category that they easily can be prevented if they built a culture that really brought those people in and gave them what they need so that they don't need to turn that have that turnover and therefore incur those expenses. And, you know, I've never met a business owner yet that would sneeze at half million dollar extra in the bottom line at the end of the year. And that's a very, very typical number just from turn. And that was just turnover in the first 120 days on a percentage of the people they brought in to become trainees and apprentices. So when you get to a sales organization, the costs become astronomical, especially because they, if they go to a competitor, they're probably taking your clients with them, or at least some of them that were in process. And, and that's where you get Gallup saying that, you know, you can get a hundred, $150,000 loss. It won't all be an expense. Some of it will be in top line loss, but it's still there. And, you know, preventing even one of those can make a massive difference for most companies. My typical client has that their turnover number in the first year. It's amazing you say that. And as you are, my mind is going back to organizations I've been with and part of. And I I will say, I think it's changed. I think it's changed. But, But my industry, the financial services industry, intentionally used to have an 80% turnover rate of trainees. They would get new advisors in. It sounds counterintuitive, but why would anyone intentionally have an 80% turnover rate or failure rate? Only 20% would make it. And so with the big firms, how it used to be was if they can hire 10 advisors and they give them about 18 months to to sink or swim, but they do some business, some activity, get some clients. Well, when you work for a big firm and you're the advisor, they're not your clients. They're the firm. 
So you're doing all this work for the firm and you're trying to make it by. But guess what? 18 months, you're, you've brought in something, but not enough to sustain yourself. You go away and the firm keeps your clients <laughs> and the firm's happy about it. And so I remember, I remember one day when I was a newer advisor and there was a senior advisor standing up. He made like 20 years or 25 years and he stood up. And I remember his name. I just won't use it. And he said, you know, there were congratulations on being here 20, 25 years, whatever it was, and being successful. And he stood up. And the first thing he said is, I'd like to thank every advisor here that's ever left. <laughs> because when the advisor leaves, the, the firm, the house takes their clients and gives it to other advisors. So there's several advisors. If you make it through that first phase, that first tranche, and you can survive and you just sit there. Just through turnover of the firm and by uh, inertia, because just because your advisor leaves, maybe your advisor didn't talk to you so much, so and they give you someone else like, oh, this is new. I'll, I'll stay with the firm. I'll stay with this guy. And there are clients that don't care because the clients don't want to always sign paperwork to change firms and open new accounts. Ask Giselle. Giselle hates opening new accounts. That's how we survive, but she hates opening new accounts. It's gotten so litigious. It's, it's crazy. Whenever we try and do some business, sometimes it's, it's astronomically, uh, time intensive to do the paperwork. So go, going back to culture, some organizations prided themselves, themselves on having intentional turnover just because they don't want those people. They just want the money that those people represent or would drive for the business. I think that model is kind of going away. Actually, I know it's gone away, uh, but that's just what it was for years. So it's interesting that you say that. Well, it's going away because it's very expensive, right? And where it starts to turn is I worked with a company that hires people to do telephone sales for non-standard mortgages. In other words, people that don't qualify for a standard mortgage. Easy sale, tough to get all the documentation together. But those people, when they hire a rep to give it a try, they spend $15,000 per month on leads per telephone rep. And all of a sudden, I don't want to spend that money because it's not just a little money, it's a lot of money that I'm having to spend every month. And if I am hiring 80% people that are leaving, all of those leads are just going to waste unless you somehow recycle them and recapture them. And the tough part in the mortgage business is it's a really time limited sale. So those leads die really fast. So either they know they have a high cost turnover model and they're okay with it, or they just don't know the cost. And if they did, they would choose just a little more wisely and potentially attract the people from the start that have a better chance of being successful. So how would a business owner know that? Or how would you and I chatted and maybe this is maybe a time to chat about your diagnostic, so to speak. And because Gallup, I think one of the personality, there's so many personality tests out there. It's insane. One of them, I think was from Gallup was 34, 33 strong. Have you heard of that one? I have. That's so we've done that one. Giselle and I have both done that. We've also mm-hmm. done disc. And so yours kind of reminded me of maybe a combination of the two. So why don't you chat about your process? And number one, again, are you being brought in and, and the, the comp- company doesn't even know they have a problem yet or are they having turnover? So how does a, I guess my question is how would a business owner know they should chat with you? And what's a, what's a sign if I'm a business owner that there's an issue? Is it just I have high turnover and I should probably talk to Chris or is there other, other signals that when I, 
just give me some, I guess, yeah. signs when it would be a good opportunity to chat with you. If you have high turnover, you need to have a chat with Chris because <laughs> I can cut those expenses by two thirds in a very short period of time if you and your management team are willing to put the work in. But that's by far not the most common reason people engage me. A lot of the uh, clients that I get and what happens is when you understand your people and align the work to your team, you can generally get 30 to 50% more work out of your team without hiring an additional person. And so the two most common reasons people meet with me and then eventually hire me is because number one, I can find a way to get almost double the work out of the team by looking and using different approaches to how we throw work at the team. The most common approach, of course, is people go, I've hired you. This is your little box. You do your little boxes work. We'll throw all of the work that's in your box at you and you do it. But that doesn't actually honor the employee who can do some of that work at four times the speed of the person sitting next to him, but hates doing something that they're very slow at because they don't like it. And if we changed a little bit, 10% of the work either side of these boxes, we could get a lot more work out of the team. So that's the number one reason people engage with me. And then the number two, a lot of very successful people have built an amazing and well-compensated job for themselves. I run into this a lot with people that build law firms, accounting firms, and other white-collar professionals. You know, they might be making seven figures, but they need to work 80 hours a week. And and that is my definition of a job. And so what suffers when somebody works 80 hours a week? Well, their family rating sucks. They're the kind of person where the business is doing great. Everything at work is handled. And if I went to their kids or their spouse and said, how are they doing? They'd say a two out of 10. And I take that challenge on even more seriously than the people that want to grow their business, although I love people that want to grow their business. But we also very commonly work with people to begin setting up the systems, processes, and most importantly, people that are going to allow them to get back to a more normal work-life balance while maintaining the profitability that they've built. Well, what is what is more normal, so to speak, or is that in the eye of the beholder? Right. So if you're a serial entrepreneur and you just like working and going and cranking and I have friends that are in investment banking, you know, they that's what they do. You just work 80, 100 hours a week and that's just what you do. And some of them just love it. Yep. So but this day and age, I think entrepreneurship's one thing, but working towards a goal. And, and if you could build a business, if, it, and if you're just building to grow and sell, that's a little different. But that's that's so I guess. Would you say depending the culture and or the team you can help depends on, I guess, the type of business and the phase in the business cycle where that business is? And most importantly, the goals of that owner, CEO or, you know, senior partner, whatever the title is, doesn't really matter. It's what are your goals? How do we map out a plan to get there? The most interesting thing I do with my clients in the first 120 days is we do a 12-month and 24-month org chart so we understand what they're building towards and we get really clear around who they need and when they need it, when they can afford it, and what the benefit of that's going to be. In a lot of cases, I'll look at a high-volume practice and it's time for them to have a project manager because the owner is still project managing 80, 100 cases at a time. And if we just hire somebody 
and we have that work offloaded, you buy a whole bunch of time for that owner. The cool part of that is some of it will go to home, but some of it's going to be reinvested in the business in the form of effective strategy because an overworked owner isn't really able to step back and make very strategic decisions. And so those are the types of things that I help owners with. And it's uh, it's extraordinarily rewarding. In fact, some of my owners have so impressed by the workshop that I put on it's to help bring them into the program that they pay for their kids and their spouses to come to the program because they want that kind of development, not just for their employees, but their families. It's it's very rewarding, fun work. So with that, how much of the progress or I think first up in any opportunity to drive improvement or efficiency is realizing where you are today? Yes. So use your assessment for that. How much of that is truly there's what people say and there's what they really do and honesty and being truly transparent about if there is an issue of your manager, you don't want to admit, but maybe your team below you says their manager says it's great, but people below could say no. Giselle don't even have that sometimes. Like, I think things are great. I see, I see things one way. She sees them differently. People are different. So how do you address that? Cause does that ever come up in uh, corporate culture? Oh, always comes up and it's always, you know, fun when it does. So one of the things that I'm always amazed by is what a lot of companies try to do with personality assessments. And of course, my program involves some level of objective data on people, but that's really not the most important thing. It's a tool to understand people. But when you look at companies, especially the bigger they get, they want their employees to use these tools to improve themselves. But you can imagine if I'm your boss and I want you to improve and I'm not really improving myself and I'm not really investing in you, how successful is that going to be? And so my program's more of a top down where we force the managers and the leaders in the organization to not only understand what's on the front of their shirt that they want everybody to know, but what's on the back of their shirt, which is what people say about them when they leave the room. And we really force people to consider and confront themselves and learn how to be better leaders. Because one of the biggest crimes against humanity, and uh, the special operations groups actually points this out very efficiently and effectively, is that the people that are the natural leaders when they're children, the people that have the charisma to always be a leader in any situation, often are the most flawed leaders that exist. And the Navy SEALs, we actually have uh, a lot of data on a number of the special operations groups, would take that natural born leader and they chuck them right out of the program. And they go with a type of leader that has to learn how to be a leader and is going to lead from behind as a wolf pack kind of approach. And companies can do the same things. But the biggest thing is you got to have some event or reason to develop and you got to invest in people and their own development. And so what I do is kind of, I don't force, but the clients force are forced to confront who they are by being put in a, a very, very, I don't know if the right, what the right word is. It's a, it's an intense leadership development uh, workshop for a couple of days and following that coaching that helps them achieve their goals. So that's the part that people don't know they're signing up for always when they sign the dotted line on the contract. I can see that. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, as you're sharing, obviously do self-reflection with Giselle and I and what we do together and how we work together. And we've got, 
it was just her and I, but we have so many coaches. We've got you know, coaches in all these different areas to provide perspective because it's just really her and I. We have a back office, but uh, they're, they're busy doing their thing. And so we rely on coaches to be our sounding boards, operations coach, sales coach, LinkedIn coach, podcast coach for this. We, we have coaches for everything. And you know, as you're sharing, I'm just thinking of myself. And one of the things that Giselle and I did recently, we were – and this is just Giselle, her style versus my style – I'm a man. I fix. Men are fixers. What we do. <laughs> Women like to vent. That's what they do. Is that a, fa- a fair statement? Is all my putting words in your mouth? No, that's that's pretty. That's a general. General thing, right? General thing, yeah. So we just a personal story, and hopefully Giselle will she'll edit it out if she doesn't like it because she's in control of editing the podcast. <laughs> so hopefully it's okay. We were just chatting with actually the podcast and editing, and. So I'll be, hey, do you want to try? You want to give it a shot? This is one of the things, and, and we're growing. We're moving to video. She's like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And so then, you know, the one day we're, we're chatting, and she's like, oh, it takes me time, and I'm this, and I'm that. So I'm hearing problem, 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 problem. So I'm like, okay, fix, 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 fix. So how do I fix the problem to make Giselle happy so she's not complaining? But as a male leader with female subordinates, sometimes it's having a key ear to understand venting versus complaining. It's two different things. And Giselle wants to be heard. <laughs> and so she's just venting so she feels heard. Is she part of the team? That's her way to – I don't want to say I – I, I do not want to be speaking for you, Giselle, at all. So please forgive <laughs> me if I'm butchering this. But I heard Giselle in my mind as a problem. So I chatted with another – or one of our coaches or vendors for the podcast to possibly take over editing. And then later on, Giselle's like, well, I like editing. <laughs> I'm like you what? I'm like you just sat there complaining about all this editing and stuff. She's like, but I actually like it because I'm left alone and I can just sit there and do my own time. Like she was saying one thing, I heard something completely different. Right? Same conversation. We're both there, but the communication just is off. Right? And it wasn't until afterwards we got to I'm like, oh, well, like help me understand what you're really saying. Cause I want to hear her, but I'm wired one way, she's wired a different way. So I think communication is huge and maybe Maybe it's too personal to share a story in the podcast, but like she's still editing. So yes, we'll see. No, no, I'm still editing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully still enjoys it. But talk about that dynamic, just like the personal, sure. professional communication, that dynamic. Well, so, you know, you've made kind of an interesting statement, which is men are solvers and men are looking to solve women's problems. But I no, actually- no, 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 no. Let me stop. I didn't say men are looking to solve <laughs> women's problems. No, no. Men <laughs> like to solve problems uh-huh. i will say that as a, okay. as a non put any words in your no, mouth no no i did not make the statement i will say that i did not say I, i'm listening right now that men are looking to solve women's problems men like to solve problems period men are fixers men Some by are, trade generally are most m- most bold do, statement okay bold, bold just, statement but what okay. i will say is that you know you are a problem solver by nature it's in your brain you're wired that way as are 55 percent of the world and so there are 55% of the people running around loving, men and women, loving to solve problems. And then there's 45% of the world that isn't a analytical deductive type of person. They are an inductive person. They learn by seeing, taste, touch, do. And once they understand how to do something, they have the ability to just become pattern recognition experts and and the drawback to the inductive personality is they don't solve problems as easily. The benefit is they're able to deal with things in a much more people-centered uh, way. And, and 
by doing that, they're able to handle tasks, which an analytical deductive just cannot do by nature. But then the other thing that you've thrown in here is verbal processing, which is really important because a full 25% of the population must verbally process to problem solve. And then other people are more technical. And the last thing in the world they want to hear is anybody verbally processing. In fact, I remember distinctly, I'm a big problem solving pattern. And I, I was in meetings at uh, one of the places I worked. It was a big Fortune 500 company. And I would sit in hour long meetings listening to people verbally process for 52 minutes. And I'm just there going the whole time. Can we get to a plan? Can we agree on doing something? Can we just move forward? Can't you all see the actual correct answer? Why are we talking about this? And so you've got these dynamics that show up interpersonally, but also inside every company and how you make people aware of them and giving people who need to verbally process the space to do it and not do it in front of the people who want to slit their wrists when it occurs. And when you do those kind of things, you get people to deal with each other on a little bit better basis and you at least reduce some of the conflict that occurs. But problem solving is an, an important one. And Companies typically like people that solve problems. And then one of the common problems I actually run into is some people are really good at recognizing those people. They hire too many of them and they don't have enough problems to go around. And you got to think of a problem solver like a Pac-Man. If you don't throw problems at Pac-Man, what does he do? Once he eats all the dots. He looks, goes, eats him. He goes to the next board, which oh, is yeah. a different company. Ah, <laughs> very true, very true, very true. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really important that inside of any company, you balance the problem solvers with the problems or you'll have problems. <laughs> and Giselle's huge smile there. Cause I think everyone, that's why I have a podcast. I'm a verbal thinker. I'm, I'm, I'm that well, guy. Yeah. And you probably know that obviously. And I go on tangents, but I'm, my tangents are me just thinking. I'm just thinking about stuff and having a board sounding board is, me looking for validation for my thought. Am I thinking the right way? Are these the right thoughts? So that's why I have all these coaches and boards and mentors. Yep. And I drive Giselle insane. You know, humbly during COVID, we were together all the time and working together and there was no off. And I'm a verbal thinker. I'm always, and I'm the owner, right? So I'm always on. So like I drove Giselle insane. Well, well she can say if I drove her insane, but during COVID, it was like, oh, needs a break. But that's just who I am. And she's the opposite. So it's, it's funny to understand. Look, now looking back, it's funny to see and understand that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that you're actually an unusual variant of a verbal processor because <laughs> most verbal processors are inductive, but you're actually a problem solver. And so the way that you express yourself is about 25% people excuse me, 25% problem solving, 75% that kind of really gregarious people person. But it's good to know and recognize in yourself without a tool that, you know, you do have to verbally process to think. And so because you would have dry, driven gazelle mad, you've gone and found other outlets for it, which is exactly what you should do. To that point, and I don't, I'm going to come back to you and talk about how you figure that out and the test we took, whatnot. So one of the tests, the Gallup, I think, do they own... 33 strong or how does Gallup and 33 strong there together? Yeah. So uh, the, Gallup owns a lot and they've okay. invested in some, they own others. Strength finders is, I think they just rebranded um, that, you know, they're a powerhouse in the field. The challenge when you approach some of these tools and, and strength finders is a good example is that sometimes you get too much information 
and it's more of a self-discovery tool than it is a business tool. And so what uh, my tools and programs do is basically screen out all of the noise you don't want to know and break it down to the seven things you can know about somebody in under seven minutes of time. Interesting. But I like where you're going with that. And both tests came with similar uh, outlets. So I will give a sidebar pitch to a group. The heck were we part? Giselle, who was I part of? Uh, Cliff, not Clifton Strengths. Um, what are we talking about? I'm so sorry. What was the group I used to go to and we in the triple Vistage? orange orange? Vistage. Yes, I was a Vistage. I was in Vistage before COVID when COVID hit because I was paying for it. I had to disengage for a little bit. May join Vistage again, but Vistage is a great peer networking group in business. So plug for Vistage, even though they're, I'm not a member right now, but they did 34 strong or 33, 33 and not, not 23 in me and not with the own testing, but one of the, you do the analysis, you come in and I, I remember walking in my group. And the instructor who did the test, like the name, everybody walked in, name, name, name. Mike Brenner is like, "Oh, you." Go, what do you mean, oh, you? He's like, "You." I'm like, "What?" He's like, "You're like one in a million." I'm like, "Huh?" And so when I did 33, the 33 strengths or Clifton strengths, there are different colors, and I was all orange. He's like, "You're the orange, orange unicorn. Like you don't exist. Like people, I've never met anyone with five orange colors before, and you're all orange, uh, which is personality and woo and a couple others, authority. And so it's like it it expressed like so much about me. But yes, I am different than most, which is okay. But my assets it also gives you the weaknesses with those strengths and weaknesses. So being authoritarian, I can be running over people and verbally thinking, and I'm just I'm just trying to get through my day." And I'm just running over someone and I may not catch that I'm running over them. So I have to be very diligent uh, when I'm communicating to read the receiver of that communication to make sure that they're processing in a positive way and don't view me as just running them over. So with every strength, there is a weakness. And I do like that assessment because of that. But even as we were going through your assessment, which I think we'll chat chat about here, I was in the middle of the work day and we just met and it wasn't a professional relationship. It was, it was a it was a personal relationship building exercise. You and I just had one or two calls like, Hey, try and do this. And so for me, I wasn't vested in the outcome for my own growth professionally. It was more, Hey, I like you. I like what you're doing. You asked me to do it. I only did it because you're a veteran and you have your own practice. And I respect you as a human being person now, friend and business colleague. I did it. And I started doing your questionnaire, your analysis. And I got halfway through it. I was like, dude, mm-hmm. I was like, you really, I can't, I can't, I got stuff to do. I can't go through it. So I, I see email halfway through like, dude, you're killing me. And then I realized it wasn't that bad. It was like one more page and it wasn't, but that was just kind of funny to hear what you said and how your own analysis works. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the fun part for me is that you are the most non-typical when they call you a unicorn, you really are a unicorn. And, and the reason for that is because you have one trait. We measure them all on a bell curve. You have one trait, which is extraordinary lack of patience, which means you have a higher work pace and less patience than 99.9% of the population, which means that you look at the rest of us like we're running around with cement boots on. Now, the the real interesting thing about this, though, is how do I get the most out of you? Because I think the reason you're an entrepreneur is you're basically unemployable 
working for someone else because you know you're going to work yourself to the bone and you are going to work so hard and so fast that you want to accrue the benefits and you're going to end up going and doing things that they're not going to compensate you for. And so every time you're in an employee-employer relationship, you're like, I'm doing all this for you. What are you doing for me? Other part that's crazy, 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 crazy is that we put you into a world that you are the prototypical salesperson, but most salespeople need a support team around them. And and you need a support team around you for how much work you generate, but your perfectionism, which is unusual, is on the high sides. In other words, you bring all of this sales and this personality and this ability to engage with people, desire to do it, a fast drive motor that's faster than 99.9%. Man, when you slow yourself down long enough to do the work, the work you do is really high quality. And that's what puts you into that fraction of 1%. You have a bigger personality than 87% of the population, but your ability to drive hard and deliver perfect work is unnatural. And that's where you separate yourself from other people. And nobody would know that you're a perfectionist when they meet you. Number one, thank you. This is this is cool. This was be your episode, not my episode, but this is actually a really good episode. And with that, I had to become a perfectionist because out of necessity, because it's my business. And if I don't do it, I don't have quality work. And if I try and put something out to a prospect or a client that's not right, not accurate, it's me, right? So I must, I must make sure it's accurate. I must make sure it's good. And so yeah. we have vendor calls. It makes a lot of sense. Giselle, think of our poor vendors. And I, I hold our vendors to a very high standard because their work is a reflection of me. And if they're not at my level and we're not delivering the right kind of work, then it's my reputation and my business, my revenue, my income, my lifestyle that, that depends upon it. So having that attention to detail and delivering quality work is, I think, instrumental. If you're the owner and also a technician, which I'm but, both. But see, here's the issue. Uh-oh. This wasn't about your business. This was wired into your brain by 12 to 14 years of age. It's always been that you've had a high quality expectation. It hasn't always expressed itself, maybe, but you have a higher quality expectation than 72% of the population. And so when those vendors deliver work that you believe is going to be or reflect poorly, you know, you are all over it in a way that other people, especially people that are good at sales, aren't able to or don't demand of others. And so the bad side or the con of that is you have a very high internal desire to do it right. And then you then expect other people to do it right. Or why am I delegating to you? And you have such a strong motor that if they don't deliver, you can just do it anyway, even though that will have some personal cost. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. And Giselle's sitting there. Uh, Giselle, I'd love to this hear your so thoughts on this. so interesting. No, yeah. this is great. I love, I love learning the psychology about people and what drives them. I just learned this about Brett. I'm always learning something about him. So this is a deeper understanding of just how how he works because he is very different from the way I work. I'm very quiet. I don't, I, I support everything that he does, but there are times where it gets to me and just like, ah, I can't work the way that you're doing, but like, give me some time. I'll get to it. So very, very interesting. Well, in fact, if, if you try to work his way, you'll be way less productive than if you work the way you're wired to. Yeah. 
it, this is funny, funny that you said this. And this is like turning a therapy session almost. I remember Giselle several times who would sit there and I'm just going through our work day and what we have. And she's like, I can't keep up with you. I can't keep up with yeah. you. I'm like, keep up. I'm like, we got stuff to do. Keep up, yeah. kid. Like, come on. Like, you know, so it's funny. It's not, she's not doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything. Wrong. I'm just myself. And it makes sense. It makes sense that you say what you say. And so, yeah, like everything is a blessing and a curse, but it explains a lot. And so you just, I remember you several times, like, I can't keep up with you. And I'm like, come on, we got, we got a lot of stuff to do. We go bam, 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 bam. Like I'm, when I'm on, I'm yeah. on. So for mm -hmm. me, for me, it's one of those things though. And I, and I actually humbly, cause I am a father, I'm a single father. I, and when I have my son, I'm a hundred percent present with my son. So I disengage. But then when I'm on, it's like I'm almost afraid to hit that switch because once I go, I go. And the amount of work I do in a short amount of time is is amazing. And I remember even Mike Curry and I would have other junior advisors underneath me for a little while. And I would come in to when I was at UBS like 11, 11.30, would let traffic die down. And I'm out of there by 4.00. And he's just like, the amount of work you do in a short amount of time is like astounding. You come in and just crank and get it done. And I'm like, well, what else are you going to do? That's what you do. Well, <laughs> no, 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 like... no, 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 no. That's what you do. <laughs> and here's the killer part of this. Uh -oh. You you procrastinate for sport because you know that you'll get a better work product if you put just a little pressure on yourself. Look at Giselle smirking. Yeah, it's... I'm going to have to take this exam. I want to. I want to. I thought you did. Didn't you have it? I don't think I have oh. yet. No. I thought you sent it to Giselle. Oh, sorry. I did. I will, it. Chris. Though I will, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Oh wait, you sent it to her and she didn't take it. Yeah. Giselle. It's okay. Giselle. It's please, okay. Please find the email. I even told her to take it. I even asked you to take it. Wow. I told you. I know. <laughs> See. And, and then she, and, and then the to do, do list. Just grew longer and it's called a survey, priorities. by the way, not a test. But um, sorry, survey. There, yes, I'll take it. There is no right or there is no wrong. It's how do you understand yourself and get the most out of you, and then as a mm -hmm. leader, how do you take that information and get the most out of your team, and and that's where things get exciting because we never in any company, you know, even you two have each other. In most companies, you've got five or six people trying to get something done. And yes, it's great to have one person that has seventh, eighth, and ninth gear, but you can't have too many of those or it's going to be a wild team. <laughs> and, uh, and helping people come to grips with that. And then I always laugh because I was at a, um, I was at an, uh, an event for CEOs and they were talking about how to use, it was in San Francisco and they were talking about how to use psychedelics. And I always laughed because if you actually just learn how your brain works and align the work with how you think, you can get into the flow without the LSD required. I've never done I've never done LSD, but hell, I'd, I'd be down to try it one time. <laughs> I'd be down to try it sometime. My mom, my mom, I think my mom did. She was a '60s baby. She's she. My mom's crazy, but she would love to do some more again. Probably. We need to get mom on the podcast. Just have to do that too. So th this is good. So Chris, this has been enlightening. Uh, very self-reflective here for me, but for you then, what is the number one challenge you're seeing out there as a consultant in corporate America with veteran entrepreneurs and well, maybe just entrepreneurs, maybe not as more, more veteran. I'm not sure if your focus is veteran or not, but what is the number one challenge you're seeing out there today with culture and why is that turnover rate 55%? Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't mind, can I throw out there why in charge. I do this? All right. I, yeah. 
I've worked at a large Fortune 500 company that treated people like crap. They jettisoned people left and right. People would have cancer. They would come back from their cancer treatment. They'd wait three months, and then they found a reason to let that person go. And that happened again and again and again. And it was very frustrating from my standpoint to look at people that were delivering great work, but because of some unforeseen circumstance in their health, this company's jettisoning them because they want more stability or they don't want the, you know, the insurance costs, or I don't know what the reason was, but the the answer was these people were being thrown away and it really bothered me. And so I work with small companies to grow because when I say small, I'm talking about 50 to three or 4,000. I mean, those are the window of companies I typically work with. And by, by doing that, I, allow these companies to hire more people. And by hiring more people, we get more humanity in the workforce. And that's really important to me. And then we go back. I work with veterans. I work with non-veterans. The big issue is when you are in a small to medium-sized company, what do you think? And I'm going to go back to Gallup because they do a lot of great research, and I'm a research-oriented guy. What percentage of middle managers say they had any type of leadership development program? say or actually did yeah they say they they report self-report that they've attended a leadership development program ever middle mid-level managers yep in like a big fortune 500 companies or no in small to medium-sized companies oh probably less than 20 percent exactly so what is the biggest thing that small to medium-sized companies need to do is invest in their managers because they don't know how to be managers and therefore they have a lot of flawed managers. And why do people report leaving jobs? Number one reason, bad manager. May I ask you a question? Sure. Were you part of that purge you discussed? Was that I your was, catalyst to start your I business? Purge number five, but actually the crazy part of the whole situation was in the time I had access to a an assessment that cost the company $30,000. And it was an amazing assessment. It was three days. They put me in rooms with psychologists. Everybody in the room but me is playing a part. They evaluated me seven ways from Sunday, computer tests, written tests, um, and then all of these simulations. And they came out, and at the end of it, they said, this is what we're going to tell Med big fortune 500 about you. Are you okay with that? And I said, yep. And they closed the book and then they looked me in the eye and they said, can we tell you something personal? And I said, sure. And they said, quit. And I was like, what? Where'd that come from? And then they explained why not only was the big company not good for me, it would never be good for me. And that I was just a terrible fit to become a fortune 500 VP. And it would never happen for me if I stayed. And of course, I was pretty young and I said, oh, you're kind of full of crap. And I went away. But eventually I got caught into a reduction in force and they offered me a okay job to stay. And I had a lot of stock and other reasons to stay. And the only thing I couldn't do is I couldn't reconcile inside myself what it was going to be like to continue to exist in that world. And so then I went and started working with smaller and smaller companies until I've done my own startups and had an exit and cratered another one and learned a lot along the way. And that's really what I bring to my clients today is all of that experience combined with tools to help them uh, really understand their company and make better decisions. I love how real you just were. You've just completely, not that you already have my trust, you 100% have my trust now. Giselle, what are your thoughts? That's really interesting. I'm glad that you had 
someone tell you that so early in your career so that you could look at other career paths for yourself? Not yeah. all people do that. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I, I've really had five careers and I've enjoyed every one of them. And this one's finally the one that not only is it a great career, but it's rewarding. And I got to tell you, that's going to be really hard to leave. Yeah. But it's on your terms because you own it. That's right. Right. Which is awesome. So Chris, this has been a phenomenal episode. I'm almost like totally crying sitting here with such a moment of self-awareness. I think it's phenomenal. Um, how would someone reach you if they want to have a conversation with you? Yeah, I will uh, throw a LinkedIn and a uh, QR code, I think, at uh, Gazelle that she can add to the end of the podcast. People can reach me on LinkedIn. They can call my cell phone. Do you want to throw your number out there right now when we have it? Yeah, 651-373-1257. It's a Minnesota number, but I live in Oregon and I travel everywhere. And uh, I'll throw my LinkedIn QR code and email at you as well. But yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to people. I love, first of all, just getting to know people and what's going on and helping them. And sometimes the help takes the form of an engagement with me and sometimes it doesn't. Either way, I'm happy to help. Now, this is great, Chris. And Giselle, how does someone find us? Yes, you can find us at our website, swe90.com. You can also reach out to Brett at brett at swe90.com. Another amazing episode of the Veteran Entrepreneur Masterclass. Thanks so much, Chris, for being here. Giselle, for keeping Thank us all together. Thank you for listening to all the Veteran time. Entrepreneur Masterclass podcast. Don't forget to click the follow button to become notified when new episodes become available. Securities offered through IFP Securities, LLC, DBA, Independent Financial Partners, IFP, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment advice offered through IFP Investors, LLC, DBA, Independent Financial Partners, IFP, a registered investment advisor. IFP and Strategic Wealth Endeavor, INC, are not affiliated. The views expressed are that of the host and are for informational purposes only and in no event should be construed as an offer to buy or sell securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Neither IFP Investors LLC, IFP Securities LLC, DBA Independent Financial Partners, IFP, nor their affiliates offer tax or legal advice. Interested parties are strongly encouraged to seek advice from qualified tax and or legal experts regarding the best options for your particular circumstances. The information given herein is taken from sources that IFP Advisors LLC, DBA Independent Financial Partners.